Good afternoon. I just feel like I've been away and I missed you guys. And I realize it's because um, I was out of town um, on vacation last Sunday and just missing one Sunday. For those of you who miss more than one Sunday, I don't know how y'all do it. Don't you miss the people? Don't you like just feel like there's something missing throughout the week? Um, and I'm just not just saying this because I'm a pastor and we want you to not miss church on Sunday. But for me, it's such an integral part. The people... You know, you guys are not only my um, sheep or not only people that are part of my congregation, but you're my friends, and I genuinely miss you guys, and so I'm so glad to be back and see you guys, so don't miss church, so when I don't see you and you don't come, I miss you as well. So, I do know that Pastor Q has been preaching continuously through the book of Acts. Um, he's doing a series um, through Acts, and the last time I preached, I believe, was on Pentecost, right? I think it was the last time. So, on Pentecost Sunday, I preached about Peter and about how um, the disciples received the promised Holy Spirit that came in the upper room. And I remember that um, I was speaking and saying that at the end of Acts chapter 2, we see this um, wonderful, wonderful, great fellowship of believers. And it's a great picture of what the early church looked like and what the early church actually was. And uh, to be honest, it's one of my absolute favorite passages in the Bible. Let me see if this it's working. All right. So Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 is one of my absolute favorite passages. And it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So not just favor the Lord's favor, but the favor of the community and all the peoples. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. One of my favorite passages. Now this is a picture of a very radical, supernatural community. Because anytime you see a group of people trying to live together and be together, there's strife and discord. But for people to just joyfully and joyously live together, give and take what's mine is yours, truly the whole sukasa, mikasa, sukasa, mikasa, you know, and, and what's mine is yours, what's yours is also mine, you know, to have that kind of community, you know, this is a wonderful, wonderful picture. And it's a radical, supernatural community. Sadly, many churches today, and we know this, Many churches today, many Christian communities, many Christian organizations today, they do not resemble this. It's really sad. While the early church was marked by unity, that was one of their hallmarks, right? Many churches today are marked by what? Splits by scandals. You can look at the history of the church and you can count. Some, some churches have a long history where they actually can count how many times the church has split and split and split. Not in a good way. It's not like the cell division, you know, the whole cell church movement where they divide and, and multiply. That's a good thing, but no, I'm not talking about those kind of good, healthy cell division. I'm talking about splits. And some churches have that kind of history. So unity and being unified is a hallmark of a radical Christian community, of a church. And today that's what I want to look at. We're going to look at unity. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. 
So Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, talking about unity and as we look at the early church and as I spoke about um, the early church at Pentecost. Now in the letter to the Ephesians here, more than in any other of Paul's letters, he calls the people and he calls the church to be unified. He mentions the phrase unity of the church 18 times in these short six chapters. It's a very short letter, very short book of the Bible, but 18 times you will find it mentioned unity of the church. Both the apostle Paul and Jesus himself, they agree that unity among the believers, unity among Christians, it's not just an important ingredient. In fact, it is essential. It is crucial. It's got to be a foundation for them. Do you remember Jesus's prayer at the last supper? This is the night before he was going to be crucified. And do you know what he prayed? He prayed for all the believers here. He prayed for all the believers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So this is a sign and symbol of God sending the Son and of of this church. It's this hallmark of unity. Jesus prays for unity within the church, a church that he knows is going to be established after his death and resurrection. He's counting on his disciples. He's counting on these ones to to show the rest of the world what community and what the body of Christ needs to look like. So this is crucial for Christians, for us to grasp that this is something that the church has struggled with throughout history. Splits in the church, not only in churches, denominational splits, Right? We know of denominations. I mean, we came out of Peace of USA, and actually it split and, and joined ECO. So you hear about denominational splits, church splits, um, Christian organizations that have split. Let me ask you, how many of you used to attend a church, or you were at a church before Hope Church, that experienced a split? How many of you were at a church that experienced a split? I see, I see hands going up, several hands going up. All right, keep your hands up. How many of you have been through a church split? You've been at a church and you were there when the split happened. All right, more hands. Now, I'm going to expect all hands here. How many of you personally know of a church that split? You've heard of a church, you know of a church, it was your mother's church, your sister's church, your neighbor's co-worker's church. How many of you know of a church and heard of a church that split, personally know of it? Right? Every hand goes up. This is, this is really, 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 really sad to me. Because in my lifetime, yeah, I grew up in the church as well. And FKPC in Maryland, the one in Ellicott City, is my home church. And this is a church that my parents were actually founding members of in 1973. 1973 was a founding uh, member. And then, if you guys know, we, Hope Church, came out of that church. But maybe what you don't know is that my father passed away in 2012. And again, my family being one of the founding members of that church in 1973, my father passed away in 2012. Now, he has known people at that church 
for 40 plus years, right? But right before, like he had cancer, pancreatic cancer, he fell ill, and the church was really, really, um, they were fighting, and there was a scandal involving the senior pastor, and um, elders left with the senior pastor, um, the church split, and all this happened, and then there was a period of several months where FKPC had no pastor. And so during that time, unfortunately, is when my father passed away. So there was no pastor to do my father's funeral. And so Pastor Q stepped in, and my family asked Pastor Q, and he was actually the one to do uh, my father's funeral. But this is the really, really sad thing, is that people that my parents have known from the very beginning for over you know, 40 plus years, those who followed the senior pastor out, and those who were, um, you know, you pick sides and things like that, who chose um, the pastor who left, they did not come to my father's funeral. This is really sad, promise not to cry, but um, because of a church split, because you choose to follow one pastor over another, you are not going to go to the funeral of people you've done life with, small groups, Bible studies, spiritually grew with, that you've known over 40 years because the senior pastor who left, because my father was on the side of staying and remaining at the church and, and keeping things stable and the elders who left um, and the senior pastor and the scandal that happened, my dad stayed. He was part of the remaining group. And so those people who left, they did not even come to my dad's funeral. And this is sad, but to this day, that happened in 2012. Even now, I was just talking, this is fresh in my mind because I was just talking to my mom yesterday about it. My mom is still bitter. My mom is still bitter. And so when now others um, pass away, who they're at that age now. My parents, they're in the, like, their late 70s, 80s, and you know, you'll hear more and more about funerals happening. But when those who left that church at that time and those people are passing away, my mom refuses to go to their funerals. And I was like, mom, just because they didn't come to dad's funeral, you know, why, why do you have to tit for tat, you know, go and be the bigger person? My mom can't get over it. She's like, no. They, she said she can't, I guess she can't forgive them for not, um, you know, showing respect to my father when my father passed away. So these church splits, it's, it's, it's bad. It's, it just has lifelong, life-lasting effects, you know, all because you choose one leader over another or dissension, and it's just ugly. It comes on the news. People hear about it, and we just can't get along. We're supposed to be the body of Christ, and we just can't get along. Do you know that in our membership class, this is the book, I am a church member, and I think many of you did take our membership class. There is an entire chapter devoted in this little book, a whole chapter that's titled um, to be, How to Be a Unifying Member of the Church. And for those of you who did take the membership class, after each chapter, there's a pledge, a vow, that we're supposed to take together. So those of you who took membership, you know, we sit around and we out loud in one voice, in unison, we declare this vow. And this pledge is, I will seek to be a source of unity in my church. I know there are no perfect pastors, staff, or other church members, but neither am I perfect. I will not be a source of gossip or dissension. One of the greatest contributions I can make is to do all I can in God's power to help keep the church in unity for the sake of the gospel. That's a vow that those of you who took membership classes, a vow that you took. And everyone who's a member of our church should know that is one of our 
our vows that we take. How important is the unity of the church? When the church is divided, it can produce tragic, tragic results. Like I said, you know, friends for over 40, 50 years, not going to each other's funerals, paying last respects, you know, tragic results. But on the flip side, on the other hand, when the church is unified and you see it, a city on a hill, you see the church moving together, regardless of you know, different opinions and diversity coming together and unified, it unleashes a power that cannot be stopped. It's something that the world needs, it's something the world's looking for, and when you see a church, even in the midst of its diversity and, and even in the midst of just how the world is today, you see a church coming together, people of God standing together and declaring that we are going to be one unified body it unleashes something supernatural. It unleashes a power that can't be stopped. So let's look at our text. I said it was going to be Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, looking at verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now this calling that we've received is to be the new people of God. It's to be bound together in unity under Christ our Lord. And we're to live it out and we're supposed to conduct ourselves in such a way to bring honor, in such a way to bring um, a respect to Christ and to bring attention to the unity and the cohesiveness of the body of Christ and everything that we do. The greatest cause of unbelief, the greatest cause of unbelief in the world is not postmodernism, it's not secularism, it's not Darwin's uh, theory of evolution, it's not science. The greatest cause of unbelief is the poor witness, testimony, and example of those of us professing to be Christ followers. It's the poor witness, testimony, and example of us Christians who say, that we are followers of Christ. That's what discourages people from following Christ. That's what discourages people from making the decision to be a Christian because they say, I don't wanna be like that hypocrite. I don't wanna be like so-and-so. I know they go to church every Sunday and yet, you know, fill in the blank. People are amazed. People are astounded at what we Christians believe. They're amazed at Jesus' teachings. People who hear Jesus' teachings for the first time, they're like, wow. This is so, such wisdom, such love. I've never heard of such, such incredible uh, selfless love. When they really meet Jesus, when they really encounter the teachings of Jesus, this is what they say, this is what they feel. And then they're scandalized. They're shocked when they actually, they're amazed and they're shocked at the way Christians act and how we actually live day to day as opposed to the teachings and as opposed to um, what's in the Bible and what we've learned from Jesus. Bertrand Russell is a famous atheist philosopher. And he once said that if Christians actually practiced what they believed, they would change the world. If Christians actually practiced, put into practice what they believed, every Christian, every professing Christian, we would change the world. I even read somewhere that Gandhi I don't, know if you've, I don't know if this is true or not, but I read it somewhere. I even read somewhere that Gandhi said, Mahatma Gandhi, he said that he would love to become a Christian. He said he would love to become a Christian just as soon as he met one who sincerely lived out what Jesus taught. Who wouldn't want to be a Christian? Who wouldn't want to love Jesus and follow Jesus if we were all like 
incredible, amazing examples of what it means to follow Jesus, right? As soon as he actually met one who sincerely lived out what Jesus taught. In the rest of our passage today, verses 2 through 16, Paul goes on and he outlines how our call to unity should be carried out. First, I think I have three points here. First, it depends on our Christian character, the character and what we say as Christians. What is our character? It says here in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Paul begins by listing these five characteristics that our unity depends on. It depends on what? Humility, gentleness, patience, mutual forbearance, that means bearing uh, each other's um, burdens and things, and love. Not surprisingly, he begins with humility. First one he says is humility. This is what Jesus embodied. This is what he was all about. He was the humble king when he was here and he walked on earth among people. It's absolutely a core ingredient and essential to unity. While the opposite of humility is what? Pride. The opposite of humility being pride. Pride always, always brings discord. Always brings discord. Notice the text says to be completely humble, not just a little bit humble, completely humble. To be humble literally means to have a lowliness of mind. A lowliness of mind. In other words, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think that you're all that. Don't think too highly of yourself. But on the other hand, you have to be careful here. To be humble doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. Do you understand the difference? To be humble does not mean of thinking less of yourself because we should know our worth in Jesus Christ. We should know the high price that was paid for us. I am worth it. I am worthy. God calls me worthy. So we are worth it, the high price that was paid. So there's a difference here. It's not that we think less of yourself, but it is a mind thing. It's a lowliness, it's an attitude, a lowliness of mind thinking others better than yourself. Humility helps us to see our lives as a gift from God. It keeps us humble. I know people who are, they excel at various things, professional athletes, uh, people who are geniuses, high IQ, different ones, uh, very musically gifted, uh, different ones. And you know those who are humble and those who will thank God and, uh, you know, and thank their parents and thank, you know, this and thank this person or that. And then you've heard of people who are, yeah, it was all me. It was all my hard work. It was all my effort. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I only have myself to thank. It was all my hard work. And you know people like that and you see the difference. When I was a youth pastor in Seattle, I had this one student. Um, yeah, these things are podcast is so I wonder if people I talk about from my church in Seattle ever listen <laughs> so I won't say her name um, but she was a student in youth group she was a senior and um, she studied hard she studied really really hard she came from a broken family her mom and dad were not together they were separated she studied hard and her goal was to get into a really good school really good college she got into Stanford really good. Her SATs were off the charts. She got into Stanford. And then one Friday night, our youth group was together and we were studying about um, giving thanks, a thankful heart, and about humility. And in humbleness, we are thankful. We are grateful for such and such and such. And such. Every good and perfect gift we have is from the Father. Um, you know, it's not by our own efforts, but God is gracious upon it. You know, I, I'm, I'm teaching all this on a Friday night. She raises her hand sitting over there and you can just feel attitude exuding from her, teenage attitude. 
attitude. And she raises her hand and she goes, I don't agree with that, Pastor Mimi. She goes, I don't need to thank anyone else or I don't think that I'm, being, I'm not being humble by saying I'm the one that stayed home when I could have been out playing like all my other friends and I studied. When my friends were doing this and this and this and that, I was at home studying. I worked hard. I deserve it and I obtained it. Nobody helped me. You know, and I was like, wow. It's the first time like I experienced that kind of, I guess, thinking of young people and just, and I was like trying to talk to her saying, you don't think anyone else had any part in that? Your mom or, you know, just anyone? But she was like, no, it was all me, you know? And she's very, very you know, thinking very clear cut about this. So humility helps us to see that our lives, our giftings and everything is a gift from God. The next characteristic Paul mentions here is gentleness. Humble and gentle. Now, this word is tricky because it's often understood, misunderstood as being weak. When we say someone is gentle, we think sometimes of the word weakness. But the word gentleness is sometimes translated in um, other Bible translations as meek, M-E-E-K. Not weak, but meek in several translations. And meekness is defined as this, strength under control. So to be gentle or meek, it means strength under control. It doesn't mean you're weak. It means you're strong. You've got strength, but it's under control. It's, it's this, a strong personality who doesn't let their strength control them, nor use it to control others, right? So you're strong, but you're able to control it so that you don't control, the strength doesn't control you, nor do you use it to control others. You're very gentle in spirit. If I wanted to, I could wield all the strength, power, and I'm not weak, but I'm choosing to be gentle with you, right? Notice that humility and gentleness are paired together here. Be completely humble and gentle. Now, these are the very words that you know our Lord Jesus used to describe himself. He put these two words together to describe himself. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. He says, this is Jesus, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For I am gentle and humble in heart, you will find rest for your souls. The next two characteristics are, they also naturally go together, and that is patience and bearing with one another, which I will call mutual forbearance. Patience is having a long-suffering attitude towards annoying people. Now, how can you get a lot, you know who, you know who annoys me, right? I've said this many, many times. Who annoys me? Looking at my, my daughters. Who do I get most annoyed by? Not you guys. I'm not annoyed by guys. Yes. Mr. Hoon! <laughs> that was your daughter that said that. Hoon <laughs> um, is back there. It's not you, honey. It's not you. <laughs> that was so unexpected. No, it's not my children. It's not my husband. The people that annoy me the most are slow drivers. You guys know this. I have absolutely no patience on God's green earth for slow drivers. You know this, okay? So um, patience is having a long suffering attitude when I'm driving on 108 and it's only one lane and the car in front of me is going 30 miles an hour the whole way and I got to get to church. 
it's, it's having that long-suffering attitude towards annoying people as we, the church, say that we want to be unified. We all have our TIMs. We all have our EGRs. You guys remember TIMs, right? T-I-M. TIMs, it means thorn in my side. So that term came about because my friend is a high school teacher. She was. She was a high school teacher at Walt Whitman High School in Bethesda. You guys know Bethesda, Walt Whitman High School? She was a high school teacher there, and she used to, you know, we would get together and talk and Teachers sometimes, you know, among my friends, we asked for prayer requests, and we would pray, and she would say, there's this one student in my history class. He's, he's my Tim's. He's my Tim's. And I was like, what's a Tim's? And she's like, he's my thorn in my side. I pray extra for him. He's my Tim's, right? And so we have to pray. And then EGR, I think first time I ever heard it was from um, Pastor Rick Warren, EGR, extra grace required people, the extra grace required people. So we all have Tim's. We have those who are thorns in our sides. We have those who are extra grace. It's required for those people. So we must keep the unity of the church and of the people of God, exercising great patience. Mutual forbearance is sort of mutual tolerance. It means being, you know, bearing with one another, which literally means to suffer with one another. If you don't have mutual forbearance, and without this characteristic, no group of people can live together. No group of people can do life together. No group of people can vacation together. You can't go on vacation and be in that close proximity with people for any extended time unless you're able to do the, mutual, the mutuality and, and just long-suffering, whether it's because delays in, tra in um, travel plans and you're vacationing with them or things aren't just going right and you're doing life together in your small groups and things are not um, working out well. You need to, we need to live together in peace and unity. The final characteristic is love. Love, which is really more, it's more of an, it's an overarching quality that is the basis and the foundation for all the others, for all these other ones that we express the other four characteristics through. Colossians 3.14 says, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love binds all these other characteristics together in perfect unity. So our unity depends on these characteristics, and Paul continues to stress the importance of these characteristics. And he's reminding us where our unity comes from. So let's look at the next verse. Secondly, verses 4 through 6, Paul offers the seven essential bases for our Christian unity. <laughs> look at that. I highlighted it. Seven essential bases for our Christian unity. And you can see it's based on the, re the reality, which is there is one body one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God the Father. There is only one, only one, and we are all part of that one. Notice that this list includes the Trinity. It says one spirit, the Holy Spirit, one Lord, that's our Lord Jesus Christ, and one God, the Father. It's the perfect example of, of unity. When you think of the Trinity, it is a perfect fellowship. It is three in one, one in three, able to coexist perfectly well together, a perfectly unified community. 
Thirdly, our unity is enriched and built up by the diversity of gifts in the church. When you look around, when you look around the church, you can feel overwhelmed by the different and the diverse people, by the different giftings, by the diverse and different personalities of, of people, different backgrounds, and you wonder, how are we to achieve unity in the midst of such diversity? You know, it's so much easier to get along with like you know, with other people who are very, very much like us. Same socioeconomic, same cultural background, maybe same gender. That's just much easier that way. And look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Which means that the difference you see are often the result of different ways that God, that Christ wants us to serve. In these different ways here, someone once compared um, the church to a jigsaw puzzle. No two pieces are the same, but they all link together. Isn't that curious? No two pieces are the same. Even those of you who've worked on puzzles, you swear that it looks like it'll fit, it, and sometimes it kind of does fit, but then you look at the picture and you know that's not right, right? And so every piece is unique. No two pieces are the same, but they all link together. And in the end, it does create a beautiful picture. It does come out to be one big picture. If you ever really want to annoy someone, those who do puzzles, you just have to give them a puzzle to do and just take out two or three pieces and then let them finish it. It will drive them insane, absolutely crazy. And you know what I'm talking about, right? If you've ever done a puzzle and you get to the end and the piece is missing. You just want to, you know, when one piece is missing after you've worked on a thousand, three thousand piece uh, puzzle and the one piece is missing, what do you do? Right? It's just, ah, it drives you crazy. And that's what the church is like. It's a jigsaw puzzle where every piece has a place. If one piece is missing, the picture is incomplete. And I talked in the beginning about missing church, right? PQ and I, you know, when we look out, we see you guys. We see who's sleeping. We, I mean, it's not like, I mean, the light is really shining in my eyes, so it's a little bit, uh, I can't see y'all as well. And the people behind these white columns, I know you sit there on purpose so that I can't see you sleeping. I know that too. Um, but we see you. We see you. And when you're missing on a Sunday, we have our staff meeting on Tuesday, and we'll be like, did you see Paul on Sunday? No, I don't think I saw Paul, but I saw Rosa and the kids. Well, we do that on Tuesday. Y'all don't know this, but we'd be like, ah, did, you see, did you see Richard? And I was like, oh, no. Oh, but I saw him later in the afternoon. Oh, he must have been teaching. So we'll talk about who we saw and who we didn't see. We see you. When you are missing on Sunday, well, sometimes you guys do fall through the crack. And like, you know, we, we, we didn't realize that you weren't there. We're like, wait, did I see it? that person two weeks ago or three weeks ago and you know sometimes we get confused but um we do we love to see people and when you're missing we notice we do see that so it's just like the one piece that's missing from the complete picture of a puzzle now the next three verses they may seem confusing here I didn't even put them up. Verses 8 through 10, if you're looking in your Bible. I won't go into it except to say that it's alluding to um, Christ pouring out his, the gifts upon his people. And there's a quote in verses um, 8 through 10. It's a quote taken directly from Psalm 68, which was traditionally, Psalm 68 was a psalm that was traditionally used by the church on Pentecost. 
And so by the Apostle Paul quoting it here, this traditional psalm used on Sunday, on the day of Pentecost, by Paul quoting it here, he's connecting the gifts with the giving of the Holy Spirit. So these gifts, some to be apostles and, and some to be teachers and pastors and such, he's connecting that with the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We see that the gifts mentioned here in verse 11 are of a very particular type, different from others that are listed Oh, I didn't go to that. Here. We see that these, these giftings are different from others that we see lists in the Bible, like um, second, no, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll see a list of spiritual gifts and whatnot. But we'll see here that these gifts mentioned here, verse 11, are of a very particular type. The gifts here are that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. This is not an exhaustive list, but a significant one. These particular gifts have the same purpose. And what is that purpose? If you look further, it says, it is to equip and prepare God's people for ministry. It's to equip and prepare God's people for works of service. It's to equip and prepare God's people for building up the body of Christ. God has called us and given us giftings for various different roles, different uh, positions, and different giftings, but the purpose is the same. No matter what your gifting and role, it is for ministry, for works of service, and for building up the mutual, or the building up of the body of Christ. Pastor Rick Warren like I said, from Saddleback Church, he said that the greatest need in evangelical churches is the release of members for ministry. It's the release of members for ministry. You know, he's all big on the purpose-driven church, purpose-driven life, that we're here for a purpose, and we're supposed to be serving, not just receiving and receiving and, you know, going to church because you want to get something, right? A survey discovered that only 10% of American church members are active in any kind of ministry. Only 10% of American church members are active in any kind of ministry. And also that 50% of all church members have no interest in serving in any ministry. 50% of church members have no interest in serving in any ministry. That's like, like at a typical church, you would say, that's like half of you. Half of you are not even interested. Now, I know that's not true of our church. You know, as Ginny said, I think all of you, if not just maybe a few, and as she said, you know, reconsider your, li your life choices. But most of you, if not all of you, are serving in some way, whether it be donating money for the dinners, whether it be uh, cooking in the kitchen, whether it be volunteering to build sets, whether it be coming early, whether it be praying for the 150 goal that PQ put out there. You are involved in some way serving and, and wanting to be involved in ministry. So I don't think that 50%, that totally does not hold true for our church. Um, but this is like on the general average churches. Can you imagine that? You think about McLean, um, the church, you know, these big mega churches. Think about it. If there's 5,000 members in a church or even 3,000, are 1,500 of them serving in some way for a 3,000 member church? What's the other 1,500 doing? They just come, and this, this statistic could be true. You know, it sounds true. 50% of those people who come to those megachurches, they don't even have an interest really in serving. But, you know, churches this size, we get everybody to serve. <laughs> Anyone heard of the movie The Hanging Tree? Have you guys ever seen this, The Hanging Tree? It's a 1959 classic. It's a Western with Gary Cooper. 
old movie, 1959. In this movie, a young man gets shot and he's dying. And Gary Cooper, he takes his knife and he digs the bullet out of this young man and he saves his life. He stops the bleeding and he bandages him up and he nurses this young man back to life. Later on in the movie, after this young man has recovered from the bullet wound and all that stuff, the young man looks at Gary Cooper and he says to him, Sir, for what you have done for me, what should I do for you? And here's Gary Cooper's answer. He says, you are going to be my servant for the rest of your life because that's how long you would have been dead if I hadn't saved you. So basically, I own the rest of your life because if I didn't save you, you would have been dead. So now I own you. And he's saying, because that's how long you would have been dead if I hadn't saved you. You will be my servant for the rest of your life. And I parallel this, this way. God saw that we were mortally wounded by sin. We were mortally wounded by a gunshot, by, by this bullet of sin. He took his knife called grace. He took his knife of grace and he dug out that bullet, right? He dug out the bullet of sin. And the only thing that we can do in return is to serve him for the rest of our lives. My life is not my own. I would have been dead, dead in my trespasses. But God, through what he did, grace, through his son, Jesus Christ, gave me a new life. And with this new life, I will serve him. With this new life, I will worship him. Because it's not my life anymore. It was paid and bought with a price. So I don't own my own life anymore. It is God's. Finally, we'll look at the uh, rest of the passage, verse 13. Do you notice why? Do you notice why these gifts were given? So that we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Warren Wearsby, one of the greatest Bible teachers in all of America, Wearsby, Warren Wearsby, he once said, after over a quarter century of ministry, I am convinced that spiritual immaturity is the number one problem in our churches. He's done ministry. He's a very renowned, very famous Bible teacher. He says, spiritual immaturity is the number one problem in our churches. Too many Christians in our churches today never grow up. They just grow old. Baby Christians, they never grow up. They just grow old sitting in the pews. It's like seeing grown adults in church wearing spiritual diapers. You know, you don't want to imagine that, but you know, you look out and you see people who've been at church forever, maybe some who've become deacons, maybe even elders. They've been attending the church for 30, 40, 50 years, you know, and they have their one um, seat that they're always in a pew, you know, that's theirs, and they sit in that same spot. Most of you who come to church always sit in the same spot. It's just, we're creatures of habit. It just throws you if you sit somewhere else. It throws me and PQ when we don't see you where you should be sitting. And so, when you look out and you see, seeing adults, grown people sitting in diapers, in spiritual diapers, never having really grown up. It's time for potty training. It's time to be trained. It's time for potty training, right? No more of the milk, but need to eat solid food, right? Maturity is crucial to a healthy church. It provides unity and wisdom within the body. It provides stability so that the church is not tossed back and forth. Look at verse 14. Until we reach unity, oh, there we are. Then we will no longer be infants 
tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. So you see that we will not be blown around by false teaching or heretical teaching, but no. And the end result of all this is that we, the church, the end result, we, the church, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. Christ is the head of this church. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself itself up in love as each part does its work as each part does its work so as the praise team comes out let me ask you this what are you doing to be a unifying force within the church let me ask you what role are you playing what are you doing to be a unifying member of this church, to be a unifying force within the church. When you see a brother and sister have a disagreement of some sort, do you take upon yourself the ministry of reconciliation and are you instrumental in bringing those two people together? There are no perfect churches, no perfect pastors, no perfect members, no perfect elders or deacons. So what are you doing to be that unifying force. When you see strife, when you see gossip, when you see uh, disagreement and discord in the church, do you just walk right by? Or do you stop and say, hey, I've taken a vow to be a unifying member of this church, and you step into their business. You know, we don't like confrontation. We're like, ah, they'll work it out. How much effort would it take for us to step into those difficult places and say, hey, I took a vow as a member of this church. I hear that you guys are not having, you know, there's, there's something going on. Is there something I can help with, you know, to be a third neutral person? Can we talk about this? Or maybe go to the pastor or another leader to talk about? If you know of strife, and if you know of bad relations, even within this church, what are we doing to be a unifying force, to be used by God, to bring reconciliation and peace over his body of Christ? And yet then we have disagreements with the Baptists, with the Methodists, with the Catholics, you know, the de denominationally different Protestants on different beliefs and different interpretations of the Bible, different doctrines. What are we doing to be a unifying body across even all Christians? and even across denominations. We're so individualistic and exclusive. Long as I'm good with God, long as my church is good with God, long as my family is good with God, let's take it community-wide and take seriously the unity. This is the body of Christ, and I don't want anyone talking crap about the body of Christ, my church. You are my people's. I miss you when I'm not here, and I hope you miss me. Love you. And it saddens me when there is discord. It saddens me when some of you may have issues with me. Again, I'm not perfect. Pastor Q's not perfect. And I know through the years you have had issues with maybe something I said, maybe something I did or didn't do, or didn't do when I said I would do it. Please, I would love that you would come and not let that discord burn within you. But come and let's, 
let's do what we can to be a unifying force. I wouldn't want anyone else to know that the pastor and the elder are in disagreement or that the pastor and, you know, among the church members of Hope that we are in discord. So consider what you're doing to be a unifying force within the church. Let's all stand together.